1: I feel this article helps us to appreciate somewhat the unheralded role of women in the Revolutionary Era.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Joe Rebelsky, discussing the relationship between General George Washington and the American poet Annis Boudinot Stockton. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster. Publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution, by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Joe Robelski, and he'll be discussing a very interesting topic. It was the letter relationship between George Washington and poet Annis Boudinot Stockton. If you're familiar with Stockton's work, uh, you'll know that she is a giant amongst American poetry and American literature in the 18th century. Most people aren't aware, however, that she had a relatively lengthy uh, correspondence, we'll say, uh, with General George Washington. Now, I don't want to say it was scandalous because it wasn't, uh, but if you read these letters you'll see uh, maybe a cheeky side of George Washington. Uh, He certainly appreciated the attention. I don't know how much his wife would have appreciated it, but at any rate, uh, it's a fascinating story and one of these great topics you only find at the Journal of the American Revolution. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Joe Robelski. Joe Robelski, welcome back.
1: Uh, Thank you, Brady. Good to be here.
0: Joe, you've been on the show a few times. Uh, remind us of your background.
1: Okay. I grew up uh, in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, I went to a local parochial high school, Notre Dame High School, and then I went to Trenton State College, where I majored in social studies, and I received uh B.A. in 1967 and also an M.A. from there in 67, also in social studies and uh, received certification as a secondary social teacher. After I graduated from college, I spent two years in the Peace Corps, 1968 to 69, uh, where I taught social studies in a secondary school in the island Republic of Western Samoa in the South Pacific. When I came back to Jersey, I taught uh, social studies at my alma mater, uh, my high school, Notre Dame, And then in 1974, I was hired by the School District of Philadelphia, where for the first 18 years, I was in the Office of Research and Evaluation. And then for my last 10 years, uh, I served as a social studies teacher with the school district in one of their dropout prevention high schools. Also, while I was in Philadelphia, I earned a doctorate of education at Temple University. I retired from Philadelphia in... uh, 2003, and then I returned to the Trenton area where I am now residing.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Uh, Well, I've been doing, I started doing a lot of research on topics involving the American Revolution, and in this area, there was a great local resource. It was the David Library of the American Revolution, located in Washington Crossing, Pennsylvania. And the library ran a program called, uh, they had a program, Scholars in Residence. And twice a year, they offered a bus trip uh, called uh, Scholar Ride Along, where you viewed, they took you on the sites uh, involving the uh, Battles of Trenton and Princeton. And I took one of these uh, tours, and the final stop on this tour was Morven Museum. It was the original home of Richard Stockton, one of the five signers of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, from New Jersey. And I was really impressed with the tour and the presentation that the docent gave. Funny, uh, a couple, few weeks later, I came across a notice that Morvin was seeking volunteer docents. And being a retired social studies teacher, I thought, well, this is a good way to fill some time in. I applied. I was accepted. And then I began delving into the lives of the people who lived there, particularly the uh, two who built it, Richard Stockton and his wife Annis Bootnow. So that's how I got interested in this topic of Annis Bootno Stockton.
0: Who was Annis Bootno Stockton?
1: Okay. Annis Bootno Stockton, uh, when you first go into Princeton you'll see a street called Bootno, or as the locals pronounce it, BootNot. But I when I give my tours I use the Uh, French pronunciation, because Annas uh, was the daughter of a man named Elias Boutinot III. Uh, The family were French Huguenots who immigrated from France when Louis XIV in 1685 had uh, rescinded the Edict of Nantes, which had originally given Protestants in France freedom of religion. Uh, Annas' ancestors originally left went to England and then New York City, where in 1701, her father, who is Elias III, was born. Uh, her father trained as a silversmith, and upon finishing his apprenticeship, he went to the island of Antigua. I don't know why he went there, but he did, where in 1733, he married a woman named Catherine Williams, who was the daughter of a Welsh plantation owner. Supposedly, due to slave unrest on the island, the Boutinots moved to Philadelphia, where Annis was born in 1736. Interestingly, while living in Philadelphia, one of their next-door neighbors was Benjamin Franklin, who had his printing shop next to Elias's silversmith shop. Then in 1753, Elias happened to buy a share of a copper mine near New Brunswick, New Jersey. Now, being a lifelong... Jersey resident. I never knew they had copper in New Brunswick. This was something I learned. However, he did not make, did not do well with the copper mine. It wasn't a financial success. And then he bought a tavern in Princeton, which was directly across the street from the newly built Nassau Hall, which was the site of the relocation of the College of New Jersey. This was in 1756. The College of New Jersey, which eventually today is Princeton University, uh, started out as a New Light Presbyterian uh, institution. The 20-year-old Annis became friends with Esther Burr. Esther Burr was the wife of Aaron Burr, Sr., who was the president of the college at the time. Uh, Esther Burr's maiden name was Edwards. She was the daughter of the... uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was a famous uh, preacher during this period of time. Now, Esther, I I don't know if I mentioned, she was 16 years younger than uh, her husband, Aaron, and uh, Aaron spent a lot of time on college business, so Esther was leading uh, kind of a lonely life. She did have two children, uh, a daughter named Sally and probably the most famous of the Burrs, Aaron Burr, Jr., and uh, Esther made friends with a number of the people in Princeton, particularly uh, women. and uh, she became friends with the person who lived right across the street from the president's house, Annis. And uh, it's, uh, she liked Annis because she was, like, she was a like-minded woman, uh, intelligent, eager to learn, and wanting to exhibit these uh, traits. An example of this was Esther wrote to a friend about Annis, and I will quote it, uh, what she wrote. But I must tell you what for neighbors I have. The niest is a young lady that lately moved from Brunswick, a pretty, discreet, well-behaved girl. She has good sense and can talk very handsomely on almost any subject. I hope a good girl, too. I will send you some pieces of, her, of poetry of her own composing that, in my opinion, shows some genius that, if properly cultivated, might be able to make no mean figure. Sadly, two years later, in 1758, Esther and Annis' friendship ended with the death of Esther from smallpox. So that's a little bit about who Annis Boutno was.
0: Talk about her marriage.
1: Okay. Annis, uh, through Esther Burr, was introduced into the Princeton Social and Intellectual League. Among the people she was introduced to was the Stockton family, who were descendants of one of the original settlers in the area. Uh, most likely, Annis formed a friendship with John and Abigail Stockton's three daughters, who were very close to her in age. But more importantly, she formed a bond with the oldest son, Richard. Richard Stockton was six years and as a senior. Uh, it, interesting things about Richard, he was in the first graduating class of the College of New Jersey, the class of 1748. However, when he went to it, it was still located in Newark. And in that class, there were seven men. Six of those men became Presbyterian ministers. Richard was the only one who didn't. He became a lawyer like his father. And he had a... He remained in Newark, where he studied law under a very prominent New Jersey lawyer, man named David Ogden. Uh, upon being admitted to the bar, which was in 1754, he began a very successful law practice. An interesting thing is when Richard passed the bar, his father uh, conveyed to him, for the sum of five pounds, 150 acres of land on the north side of the King's Highway in Princeton, on which later on Richard and Annis would build their Georgian-style mansion named Morven. Uh, the friendship between Annis and Richard developed into a romantic relationship and eventual marriage. While there is no official record of the actual date of the marriage, it is believed to have taken place in late 1757 or early 1758. Annis and Richard had six children. The oldest, Julia, born in 1759, twin daughters, Mary and Susan, 1761, John Richard, the oldest son, 1764, Richard, or Lucius Horatio, 1768, and the youngest, a daughter, Abigail, 1753. While the two came from different family backgrounds, Ann is the daughter of a silversmith and a tavern keeper, Richard was the scion of a wealthy landowning gentry and legal professionals. Uh, however, the marriage was a love match. In uh, Constant Grief and Wanda Gunning, who wrote the book on Morven, Morven Memory, Myth, and Reality, it was, they noted, their surviving letters and Annis's poetry are full of expressions of affection and concern for each other. They shared interest in books, Poetry, Literary Friends, Horticulture, and Politics. Well, there's no official record, like I said, there's no official to date. Uh, but interestingly, this romantic interest between the Stocktons and the Bootnose was further expressed when Annis's brother, Elias IV, who had studied law under Richard, and uh, Richard's sister, Hannah, were married. So I call them double brother in law. so they both married each other's uh, sisters, so that's a little bit about their marriage.
0: How was she widowed?
1: Okay, so Richard Stockton, uh, he was a, a political moderate. Uh, one of the, the only record of one of his political actions took place in 1765 when he opposed the Stamp Act. Interesting. I studied a little bit more about the Stamp Act and why Richard and other people in New Jersey opposed it. Most of the, st- the the highest paid tax on stamps hit lawyers because uh, every uh, legal document had to have one of these stamps on, and they were the most expensive, uh, expensive stamps. So sounds like it was something in self interest. Uh, but Richard. I, when I give my tours and I talk about him, he had a foot in both camps. Uh, he, from in 18 months in 1767 to, uh, through 68, he spent 18 months in the British Isles. Uh, he was, he gave a presentation to King George III, which was a, uh, representing the College of New Jersey, thanking King George for Uh, getting rid of the Stamp Act. Uh, He went to the Queen, uh, King George's Queen's Ball, where he met many uh, prestigious British leaders. And also he uh, went to Scotland, where along with uh, another graduate of the college, Benjamin Rush, they convinced the prominent Presbyterian uh, preacher, in Edinburgh, uh, Dr. John Witherspoon, to come and be the head of the college. So with this trip, uh, he, he, like I said, he, his notoriety became very important in the colony. As a matter of fact, in 1768, William Franklin, the uh, last royal governor of New Jersey, uh, Benjamin Franklin's son, and probably knew Annis when they were growing up together in Philadelphia, appointed uh, Richard to his uh, governor's council, which today would be like being a cabinet member. And then in 1774, Franklin appointed Richard to the New Jersey Supreme Court. So he had very close ties with the British government. However, when fighting broke out in 1775, um, many of the people in the Princeton era, particularly those of Presbyterian persuasion, which the Stocktons were, they sided with the Patriot cause. Richard had to make a decision, and he sided again with the Patriots. And in June of 1776, he became one of the five. He was uh, elected by the, legisl- New, the New Jersey legislature that took control of this colony, or at that time became the state. And he was appointed to the, or elected to the Continental Congress in June 1776, and became one of the five signers of the Declaration of Independence from New Jersey. In case anybody's interested, the other four are John Witherspoon, Francis Hopkinson, John Hart, and Abraham Clark. Uh, again, that was July 1776 in Philadelphia, uh, and we all know what happened during the remainder of the summer and into the autumn. Uh, things did not go very well for the Patriots in the War of Independence. As a matter of fact, On November 29, 1776, the British Army was approaching Princeton, so both he and Dr. Witherspoon decided it was prudent that they leave town before the British actually arrived. Witherspoon uh, went with Washington across the Delaware River, while Stockton, for some reason, elected to take his family east to Freehold, New Jersey, to the home of a man named John Hoven, who was the vice president of the Patriots, New Jersey uh, legislature. Uh, Again, it was a bad move because within two days, at that time, Monmouth County was a uh, hotbed of loyalism, and within two days of going into Freehold, he was taken by the local loyalists, turned over to the British, and then imprisoned in the Provost Jail in New York City. Uh, Richard Stockton is noted as the only civilian signer that was ever arrested by the British. Uh, When the war moved down south, four other signers were taken prisoners of war, but they were in uniform, Uh, one from Georgia and three from South Carolina. After a few weeks being held in this notorious jail and with dismal prospects of the Patriot cause, he signed the oath of pardon offered by the Howe brothers who aside from being military leaders of the British uh, forces in America, they were also tasked with the uh, job of being peace commissioners. So they, on November 30th, they offered this amnesty or free pardon. Uh, And if you're willing to take this oath, and I'll read the oath, I, name, do promise and declare that I will remain in a peaceable obedience to His Majesty, and will not take up arms, nor encourage others to take up arms in opposition to his authority. So again, most likely having spent time in his prison, which was uh, not a very good place to be, from what you read about how it was run, uh, Richard took the pardon. And uh, within a few weeks, he was released and returned to Princeton. So the life for Richard and Annis, would never be the same as it was before the war. Their home, Morvan, which had been taken over by the British during the month they occupied Princeton, it became the headquarters of Colonel William Harcourt and the 16th Light Dragoons. Uh, they used Morvan as their headquarters. Uh, they did a lot of damage to the property. It was reported uh, the damage was uh, to the extent of 5,000 pounds. This was written up by uh, his son-in-law, Benjamin Rush. Uh, Benjamin Rush, as I noted earlier, had graduated from the college. He was studying medicine in Edinburgh, and uh, Rush, in January of 1776, had married um, the Stockton's oldest daughter, Julia. So now having accepted Howe's amnesty, Richard's reputation was kind of tarnished uh, in the eyes of a number of patriots. Of course, he resigned from Congress. Uh, he came back to Princeton. He resumed his law practice. Uh, and mainly his new his clients from then on were going to be those who were not active in the cause of independence and loyalists. In December of 1777, He ended up taking another oath. It was New Jersey's oath of abjuration and allegiance. Because uh, Stockton was the highest level person who took the British oath. But at the same time, anywhere from 2,500 to 2,700 New Jersey men took Howell's pardon. Again, because everybody thought the war was over. Uh, And if you didn't want to either be imprisoned or lose your property because you had taken that oath. You had, again, now pledge allegiance to the state of New Jersey and, uh, the, and the United States, and you were kind of sorry for having taken the uh, oath to Howe in the first place. Sadly, by the end of 1778, it became a, uh, apparent that Richard had cancer of the lip. He had two surgeries to remove the malignancy done by his son-in-law, Dr. Rush, but with no success. Uh, Eventually, the cancer went into his neck, and he died of throat cancer on February 28, 1781. Annis was 45 years old when she became a widow and continued to mourn her husband for the rest of her life, mainly expressed in her poetry. Uh, Usually on the anniversary of his death, she would... uh, have a poem published. Uh, Annis never remarried, although, as reported, she had at least two suitors. Uh, interesting, one being the widower, Dr. John Witherspoon. Uh, so that's basically the story of Richard and Annis.
0: How did Stockton first become acquainted with George Washington?
1: Okay. Uh, Annis came to Washington's attention through her brother, Elias IV. Elias was the Continental, Continental Army's first Commissary General of Prisoners, and Elias reported directly to George Washington. Annis had written a poem titled, "Address to General Washington in the Year 1777 After the Battles of Trenton and Princeton. You'll note back in those days, poems had long titles. Uh, and she had sent this poem to her brother, who must have forwarded it to George Washington. Uh, But Kazanis had not sent it to Washington, nor had she had it published. Uh, For on February 27, 1779, Washington wrote to Elias, I quote, I find myself extremely flattered by the strain of sentiment in your sister's composition, but request it as a favor of you to present my best respects to her and assure her that However, I may feel inferior to the praise; she must suffer me to admire and persevere, as it how as it a mark of her genius, though not of my merits. Anne's had her first face-to-face meeting with George Washington. Most likely, it came on August 29, 1781, when Washington and General Rochambeau dined at Morven on their way to Yorktown. In a letter in uh, to her brother Elias, dated October 23rd, 1781, Annis described her joy at meeting Washington and the victory at Yorktown. I am sure for my part, since the day General Washington went from this house, and I guess the enterprise, I have had it so much at heart that I have not forgot it a day nor night, and so I will have pleasure in viewing it as the answer of my prayers. And if we women cannot fight for our beloved country, we can pray for it, and you know the widow's might was accepted.
0: What are some of their more, in your opinion, interesting correspondences?
1: Well, uh, the interesting thing is, and if for people who are interested, you can, uh, all of these correspondence between Richard and uh, George Washington can be found online uh, at the uh, Founders Online National Archives. And so uh, if you read my paper, they're all quoted there. But uh, a couple of the interesting ones. Annis wrote a uh, pastoral poem on the subject of your town, that's followed the battle of your time. Again, it was titled, Lucinda and Amanita Pastoral on the capture of Lord Cornwallis and the British Army by General Washington. Uh, Washington acknowledged an appreciation of her work when he wrote to her in a letter in part he noted, the address from a person of your refined taste, elegance of expression affords a pleasure beyond my powers of utterance, and I have only to lament that the hero of your pastoral is not more deserving of your pen, but the circumstances shall be placed among the happiest events of my life. I have the honor, uh, et cetera. This was the first actual correspondence from Washington to Annis. Then in the summer of 1783, uh, Richard and Annis were going to have another face-to-face because that summer uh, Congress had been chased out of Philadelphia by disgruntled Continental soldiers. And her brother, Elias the Fourth, Elias the IV, he was the president of the Continental Congress at the time. So they adjourned in Philadelphia, and he suggested they uh, reconvene in Princeton. And uh, starting and their first meeting was on July 2nd in uh, 1783, and they remained in Princeton until November. And one of the things the Congress did, they invited George Washington to come and consult with them. At this time, Washington was in Newburgh, New York. Uh, you know, everybody, the war was over. They were just waiting for the final peace treaty. And so, in August uh, 26th, he or he came down from Newburgh, set up headquarters in uh, a little town, a little village outside of Princeton called Rocky Hill. His headquarters, his last new headquarters, was a place called Rockingham, which is a state museum today. And on August 26th, he gave an address to Congress in Nassau Hall, and Annis was uh, believed to be in attendance. And again, every time she saw Washington, she ended up writing a poem about uh, what she thought of him, and uh, she wrote him a letter telling him how much she liked what he did, and uh, she went so far that she wrote a follow-up letter uh, saying that she has to beg his pardon. She thinks she was too effusive of gratitude and esteem, and she hoped he, she didn't offend him. Now, the next day, Washington, it seems in a playful mood, re- replied to Annis's poem, and note, he began, You apply to me, my dear madam, for absolution as though I was your father confessor and as though you had committed a crime, a great in itself, yet of the venial class. And Washington went on further in his letter to uh, flatter Mrs. Stockton about her poetry and invites her to dine with him next Thursday. And uh, he goes, and go through the proper course of penitence, which shall be prescribed. And he concludes the letter by saying, Be assured we can never forget our friend at Morvin, and that I am, my dear madam, with every sentiment of friendship and esteem, your most obedient and obliged servant, George Washington. Interestingly, uh, George, or William Baker, uh, who wrote uh, the book, The Itinerary of George Washington, uh, in a footnote stated, His reply and acknowledgment dated Rocky Hill, September 2nd, 1783, which is about this letter, is thought to be the most sprightly and effusive of his pen. Uh, The Treaty of Paris was signed in September. Uh, Congress and Washington got word of it on October 31st of that year, and uh, Congress then adjourned in November. They re-met in Annapolis in December, where on December 23rd, Washington uh, tendered his resignation of Commander-in-Chief and went to Mount Vernon. And Annis wrote another part two of her, Lucinda in a minute, uh, pastoral, uh, talking about the great things he did. Interesting thing, it, you can read this poem in the book uh, by, I'll talk about that in a little while, uh, the poem was 292 lines long, so Annas was not uh, lacking in words of praise of Washington. Uh, th- and this was their last correspondence until 1787, when Washington was the president of the convention that was going to uh, reconfigure the Articles of Convention of Confederation, and we know it was the uh, eventually led to the present constitution. Uh, again, Anna's composed poems about, it was called an epistle to George Washington in May of 1787. He sent her a letter, uh, on June 30th saying that he, he feels bad that he didn't reply earlier, but he was so busy, uh, with his duties as president of the convention. They hadn't had another correspondence until August 31st, 1788, uh, When Washington sent Mrs. Stockton a letter talking about how great it was that the United States' new Constitution was going into effect, and he and interestingly in this letter he said he attributes it to the uh, attributes the the adoption to Providence. Also, he praised the role of women in the birth of the United States. Nor would I rob the fairer sex of their share in the glory of a revolution so honorable to human nature. For, indeed, I think you ladies are in the number of the best patriots America can boast. Uh, they continued correspondence in March of 1789, when it became apparent that Washington was going to become uh, the president of the United States, and it sent him another letter describing how great the United States will be and how lucky they are that Washington was going to be the president. And in the bottom of the letter, at the end of the letter, she felt sorry that because of his duties of the office, that this most likely was going to be a farewell farewell letter. And uh, in turn, Washington thanked her for her polite letter and poem. The culminating event in the relationship between the poet and the general came On April 29, 1789, when Washington went through Trenton, uh, New Jersey, on his way to New York City for his inauguration, the residents of Trenton had uh, built a triumphal arch over the bridge that spanned the Peak Creek, which was the site of the Second Battle of Trenton. Uh, There was a banner on the arch that read, The Defender of the Mothers Will Defend the Daughters. And uh, as Washington approached the arch, he was met by a group of young ladies and matrons who sang a song of praise. Among the ladies, the matrons, uh, was Annas. On May 1st, she sent him the last letter and a poem. In it, she stated, Can the muse, can the friend forbear? For I must call the friend great as though thou art. To pay the poor tribute she is capable of when she is so interested in the universal congratulations. I thought I could testify my joy when I saw you, but the words were vain and my heart was so filled with respect, love and gratitude that I could not utter an idea. Uh, Three days later, Washington sent Annis a thank you note and it was his last correspondence, which started, Dear Madam, I acknowledge the thankfulness of the receipt of your repeated favors Were I master of my own time, nothing could give me greater pleasure than to have frequent occasions of assuring you more at large with how great esteem and consideration I am, dear madam, your most obedient and humble servant. So that was basically uh, the correspondences between Richard, or between Annis and George Washington.
0: How could we summarize their relationship?
1: Okay. Uh, before I go on, just let me note that uh, Annis uh, died in in February of 1701, uh, 20 years after her husband, and um, she had lived in Morven for uh, most of this time. For some reason, in 1797, she got there was a falling out between her and her daughter-in-law. Uh, Her eldest son, Richard, married a woman named Mary Field, and Annis moved out of Morvin. First, she went to live with her daughter, Julia uh, Rush, in Philadelphia, and then in 1789, she moved in with her youngest daughter, Abigail, who had married Mary Field's uh, brother, Robert, and she lived with them on their estate along the Delaware River in Burlington County. And as I said, Annis died on February 6, 1801, uh, her remains were brought to Philadelphia, and today her grave is in the Christchurch Cemetery, uh, the plot owned by the Russians. Uh, a side note, Richard, her husband, is buried in the Stony Brook Meeting uh, Cemetery, the Quaker Cemetery in Princeton. Now, to summarize their relationship, in, uh, my conclusion was, it seems to me in the story of the poet and the general, we have a case of what would... I refer to as idol worship, by a middle-aged, talented, patriotic woman. Uh, We might even apply the 20th century term for such a person as a groupie. For her hero of the American Revolution, George Washington, as for the general, uh, whom we usually regard as being a somber and having a stoic personality, uh, I think it was Baker in his itineraries, he said, George Washington really didn't like poetry. Uh, it seems he was delighted in her praise, sending thank you letters to her for her works about him in what seemed to be a very playful, flirtatious manner.
0: Joe, how does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better?
1: Okay, I feel this article helps us to appreciate somewhat the unheralded role of women in the Revolutionary Era. I know going through school we heard about Molly Pitcher and Betsy Ross very little more of other women uh, who took part in the revolution, and as as Annis wrote to her brother, uh, quote, "But though a female, I was born a patriot, and I can't help it if I could." Another example of her unheralded role was that when the British were approaching Princeton, aside from burning family silver and valuables. Annis went over to the college and retrieved the records and notes of the college's Whig Philosophical and Debating Society. Uh, While this group wasn't really attached to the Patriot Whig political wing, uh, she felt that their records and notes were important and that the British would have taken them and destroyed them. Uh, And one of the things was, uh, posthumously, Annis was elected the only woman uh, to an honorary membership of this society. So the story of Annis and other women of the era who offered any kind of intellectual or political ideas had to overcome extreme prejudice of the era and the accomplishments of Annis in these areas, an example of one striving to overcome obstacles put before them. So, like I said, I think Annis uh, was a an example of what women could do and were not... Uh, giving much credit for it when they did it.
0: Joe Robelski, thanks again.
1: Well, thank you, Brady, and um, I'll be looking forward to hearing the
0: podcast. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.